love that music. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. The last radio hour of the week and has been for many, many years. It is with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College and or one of his colleagues this week, Dean Stephen Smith, continues as we complete the history plays, uh, unless we count the not history history plays, which we will come back to at a later date. But we are in Henry VIII, and we have gotten a long time to get to Henry VIII, who, I mean, uh, stepping back from the plays, Stephen Smith, really one of the most interesting people in English history, in American history, in history. Oh, he's, he's a captivating and powerful figure, and um, it's interesting to me that Shakespeare waits to the very end of his, his working life to take up the story. Um, you know, he he does so one earlier time in his career. Uh, he re- collaborated on the book of Sir Thomas More, and that play was never produced and never published. Um, so this this is a, a sensitive subject, Henry VIII, and it's the subject of his his last well, close to the last play. Because the Queen is Henry VIII's daughter, right? But the Queen has mixed feelings about Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, he, she, she is the, the basis of her claim to be in the line. So she's united about that. And then the fact that he killed her mother. Yeah. She probably didn't like that. Well, I'm going to say he has mixed feelings. She's going to be queen, but, you know, she's got to survive Mary first. Yeah. And Edward. Yeah. So give us a, a summary, if you will, uh, Dean Smith. Okay, so we ended with last time with Richard III um, being defeated by Henry Tudor, Henry VII, and then this is the story in part of Henry's uh, son, Henry VIII. Um, it's obviously Henry VIII had a huge and long reign; and it's complicated and, and it could be the subject of several tetralogies. But what Shakespeare does is he focuses it on uh, three people who fall and then three people who rise. Um, the Duke of Buckingham, Cardinal Wolsey, and Queen Catherine will all fall in the play. And then King Henry, Anne Boleyn, and Thomas Cranmer will rise. And so that's how it's kind of organized. And um, it has a strange mood. Uh, the prologue says, I come no more to make you laugh. Um, and so it has this sort of melancholy note at the beginning, which is strange. And again, at the end. Um, but in between, it's really the story of um, the divorce of Catherine, the remarriage to Anne Boleyn, and then the birth of Elizabeth. Now, I learned from your notes to me that it has a cryptic title, another title. And I, I have never heard that. Uh, all is true. Yeah. When is, where does that circulate? Why does it circulate? What is the significance of that? <laughs> uh, to be perfectly candid with you, I wish I knew. Um, it's a it's a strange title. Um, the expression comes up in one other place a few years before Henry VIII in the Winter's Tale. Um, the king said, I think it's the king says, "All is true that is mistrusted," um, and so it has a again a strange alternative title. And um, I leave it at that for now. What, what, what do you take away from that, Larry Arn? All is true. Uh, it, well, first of all, it's too many for me. I don't know. But uh, this reference to truth, this, this is the, one of these plays where the church and the state are central characters, right? Because for the first time in all of this, 
you've got your pious kings and you've got your apparently impious others, but and the pious kings seem to me to be a, a, a convincing picture. But now uh, the representative of the king of the of the pope is a power in this play, and the church obstructs Henry, and the tension in the play and the death of, of, in the play come from that fact. Now, this has become an obsession of modern readers with the Wolf Hall series and the attempt to discredit Wolseley and everybody around Henry VIII. What is your take on all these people, either of you? I mean, just generally as people in history, not in this play. Uh, Well, Cardinal, uh, they did some great things, right? Cardinal Wolseley built Christchurch College and Christchurch Chapel. And, you know, they were... You know, they were mighty powers, and they did great things. They were extremely capable people. Henry VIII himself was a very talented man. Aspired to be a doctor of the church, a theologian of serious note, and actually made some progress there. Yeah, and remember, he, well, Steve knows everything about this, but tell him about Henry and Thomas More, Steve. Well, I, I, I go back to that play, Sir Thomas More, that Shakespeare collaborated on. You know, it's the only literary text we have that survives in Shakespeare's own hand of the scenes that he wrote in it. And boy, when I look at all these English history plays and the portraits of the kings and the leaders, that's one where I, you know, I'm happy it survives. And boy, it would have been fascinating if it had been produced. Because unlike, you know, Henry VIII or Richard II or Henry V, the leading figure in that play is the you know English citizen, um, a Lord Chancellor, has a different focus, and I really think um, I would have loved to have seen the full treatment of that uh, from Shakespeare. I mean, they were friends; uh, they worked together. Uh, they end up on opposite ends of the the, the question over Catherine's marriage. Pub- they published together on the question of the authority of the church in politics. Right, and he took the side that Thomas More took. Uh, excuse me, sticking this in, Steve, because he'll fix it if I get it wrong. Thomas More was himself a reformer of the Catholic Church, but that doesn't mean he didn't think the Pope was the supreme representative of the Lord on earth. And that was Henry's view, uh, written out and published with Thomas More. You know, and isn't funny what life does to you. He cut the head off his friend. Well, that, we're, we're about to do a series on friendship over the next many weeks, Dr. Arn and I. And I'm curious, do you really think they were friends, Stephen Smith? You know, I do. I mean, we, we have that one detail that they used to look at the stars together from the roof of one of the palaces. Um, and I've always wondered, you know, Thomas More's death, when, when he says, I die the king's good servant and God's first. Um, when he when he said that on the scaffold, uh, he was quoting Henry's own directions to him when he entered the royal service. I've always thought it's it's like a last act of friendship toward toward Henry. Um, and you know Thomas More was famous, according to Erasmus, for friendship in particular. And so I think that's a great idea for a show. I mean, I think we really need to talk about friendship again, both civic friendship and, and personal friendship. 
um, but Thomas More, that was his um, one of his calling cards as a as a person born for friendship, Erasmus called him. He's a saint of the church. I pass his statue every time I go to mass at my parish in in Virginia because he is a he's not the patron, but he's revered there, and uh, he's you know the patron of the Red Mass and the patron of lawyers and all this different stuff. But he is, he would not put up with Henry. Why? Well, I mean, I think that finally when. Henry, an earthly prince, you know, made himself uh, the head of the the church. Um, that was that was that. Um, you know, the English church shall be free, as Magna Carta says. And um, so there was that. I also think he did not support the the marriage to Anne Boleyn. He says at his trial, um, I'm, I'm on trial for my life um, uh, because I would not consent to the marriage. So. There's, you have the church and state issue, you have the marriage, they're all kind of tangled together in this. Um, but in, in this play, he comes up briefly, and Wolsey says, he's a learned man, and may he you know, live long and, and do justice for truth's sake and for his own conscience. The Cramner novels and Wolf Hall have attempted to make him a villain of sort, and I really do resent that, because it's not, say, historical. He's a well, noble you back, and courageous man. When you go back to Sir Thomas More, that play, Hugh, um, one of the more remarkable things about it is how positive the presentation of More is. And it's one of the largest speaking roles in the drama that survives. So Shakespeare is clearly interested in the figure. And um, when, you, when you think back to Richard III, you know, More was one of his big sources. So what about this figure, Thomas More? in addition to all these kings and dukes and, and uh, cardinals. More, more on that when we come back. We've got to talk about Buckingham falling and Anne Boleyn rising. Remember, the short version is always good. Uh, divorce, beheaded, survived. Divorce, beheaded, died. That's what we do with the six wives of Henry VIII. We're only going to get to the second next. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Arn and Stephen Smith will be back. The Hillsdale Dialogues, everything Hillsdale. Is it a Hillsdale.edu? I'm Hugh Hewitt. We're talking about Henry VIII with Dean Stephen Smith of Hilltale College. Larry Arn, president of Hilltale College. This is, I don't I think we've been doing this for many weeks now. Henry VIII is on the table, and the first rising to which Dean Smith referred in the last segment is that of Buckingham, I mean, first fall, and the first rising of Anne Boleyn. What is Buckingham's undoing? Uh, he crosses uh, Wolsey, and he's going to be undone by an iffy trial. Uh, it happens very briefly at the beginning, and all of the and all of the interest is on Buckingham's speeches after his condemnation. Um, he dies actually with a lot of dignity in the play. Uh, he says, "I could wish that those who sought my death were more Christians than they appear to be." Interesting line. He talks about the long divorce of steel falling on him, killing him. He forgives um, his enemies. And he says, when you speak of something sad, speak about how I fell. I am done. God forgive me. And he goes to his death. So he, he's one of the first uh, falls. You know, when, when you get to moments like this in Shakespeare, that, that 
presence or that proximity of death really tends to, to make the speakers more powerful, um, clearer, more unforgettable, more insightful. John of Gaunt's death is like this in Richard II. There's just something about a deathbed that, that gives, gives clarity. Now, in the earlier tetralogy, when everyone dies, it's often almost funny. You know, they have been fighting and violent and unjust and breaking oaths, and then they're, then they're mortally wounded, and they say, I see heaven opening. God's getting ready to welcome me. <laughs> and, when you, and when you teach it, uh, students often say, oh, really? Really? <laughs> but, but, but in this play, um, Buckingham, uh, Woolsey, and Catherine are all invested with tremendous dignity after their fall and, and as they approach their death. Well, Wolsey ends up with a hair shirt on. I mean, he's an interesting man in history. Opulent, obviously, yes, Christ Church College, but but a hair shirt tells you a lot. Um, what about Anne Boleyn? We get, he's, he's dealing with the monarch's mother now. This is not this is not uh, secure turf to work on. No, it's not. So it makes some of the things that are in the play even more surprising. Um, the big secret that comes up next in the play is that there's a separation between the king and Catherine. Uh, the king has a scruple regarding the marriage. Um, and the relationship between Henry and Anne begins with a ball that uh, Wolsey, Wolsey sponsors. And um, But for my money, the most interesting exchange are these two guys talking about the king's conscience and Anne Boleyn. And the one guy says, oh, marriage with his brother's wife has crept too near his conscience like he's disturbed that his marriage might be illegitimate to which the other guy replies no his conscience has crept too near another lady <laughs> so well which is it is it, it clear-eyed <laughs> very well, clear-eyed and hard not to laugh a little bit well that. elizabeth I, i'll turn to larry Arndt. elizabeth knows all this right she is a shockingly <laughs> effective prudential statesperson oh yeah she well first of all she doesn't you know she, she after she, when when uh henry dies her father dies she thinks she's likely to be killed yep and she waits for them to come get her and you know, they do eventually come get her because her sister, half-sister Mary, uh, dies. And, and you know, Mary Mary was a big-time Catholic, and and uh, Elizabeth was thought not to be, as she later proved not to be. And so, and, and that's, there's just reasons to kill her, and she knows all this history. And uh, it's, you know, she's... And see, that, there's another thing. Uh, you know, we talk about the friendship between Henry and and uh, Thomas More. Friendship is for, in the full sense, is only for equals, right? Because, uh, and that's in Aristotle. And the reason is, you get to be king or in the line to be the king. They're all faced with a choice. They can absent themselves, or if they hang around. They might be killed just because they're in the line. Yep. And the more ardent of them, they just try to take over, right? Well, Henry is trying to preserve his line. And remember, that's not that old, hard to preserve. He needs a boy. He needs a boy. And we come back, we'll talk about that. Wolsey comes up, Catherine comes up, more comes up. Henry VIII is on the table. Shakespeare is the topic. 
Dr. Arn and Dr. Smith will return to the Hillfield Dialogue. Stay with us. I'm Hugh Hewitt. If you've ever been to Hampstead Heath, you understand all of this great stuff is uh, Hampton Court. I mean, not Hampstead Heath, Hampton Court. It's real. It actually happened. People had to make these decisions in the Shakespeare plays. And at some point, Henry VIII has to turn on Woolsey. And he seems, I mean, that's like turning on the smartest guy in the kingdom, isn't it, Stephen Smith? Yeah, well, I mean, he's an incredibly talented man. Yep. And an incredibly talented administrator and leader. And part of the play represents, you know, Henry, who probably leans on him too much, separating from him. I mean, Henry, in the play at least, is represented as being motivated by pleasure often. And you get the sense, again, this is a play, right? You get the sense of, of Woolsey kind of taking care of the government and, and Henry pursuing. Um, maybe wars or pleasure, and um, Wolsey will be undone by his enemies when some papers are intercepted and Henry learns the truth about his ambition, his expenditures. But really, the heart of, of this part of the play is what Wolsey says after he falls from grace and after he loses everything. He's given some of the best speeches in late Shakespeare. Well, let me come back to that. I want people to understand what his ambition were I don't that there are more than one. How do you understand Wolseley from the play and in history as to his ambitions? Well, I think he's angling for in the play's uh, text. He's ang- angling for even the papacy itself. Like he's just an ambitious guy, and um, he also has a lot of money and um, and what goods. And so, I think he would be very satisfied with Doctor Arne's reference to him earlier. He founded Christ College. Did well, you think, Larry, that that would be, he'd be happy with that? Yeah, he's like, uh, uh, what, Richard, he's like uh, Henry the Seventh. No, Henry the Sixth. Henry the Sixth built some beautiful education institutions, and so did Wolsey. Now, they were very different kinds of people. Wolsey was very effective. But, yeah, he, he, and, you know, I, it's, it's hard, if, if you watch, by the way, there are two films you could watch about this play. There's a production of it that I haven't seen, but I've read reviews of. It was produced in 1979, I see. And it's supposed to be really good. And then, of course, there's A Man for All Seasons. A wonderful play. It's one of my favorite films. Do you like that, Steve? Yes. Oh, I, yes, it's wonderful. It, it is. I, I, uh, I once had a bunch of fraternity boys get caught doing something bad. And we got past that, and then they came and said, okay, now can we come over and watch a movie and talk about it? So I showed them that. Oh. And and you know why? What will we do when we cut down all the trees? When will you hide? uh, Thomas More is an example of a statesman thinker, right? And that means that he thought his way through these things, at least until he lost his head. And, And... that, that, you know, there's a kind of rich world in his mind that's displayed in that movie. And I haven't read the play that Steve is talking about by Shakespeare, but, you know, in Thomas More's own life, Steve's teacher, Wegemer, is the discoverer, I think, 
of the last thing Thomas More wrote, uh, A Dialogue of Comfort Against Tribulation. And he wrote it in prison and managed to hide it. And it's you can, you can read it. I've now. never heard of it. It's a, it's a, tell him about it, Steve. Yeah, I mean, when he was in the tower, he wrote uh, The Dialogue of Comfort Against Tribulation. And it's a, a philosophical dialogue on, on suffering, but also on leading your life well. Um, so it's, it's written for um, family and friends who will survive him and presumably not be decapitated. You mentioned that, that head, Dr. Arn, um, one of the other leaders in Europe after Moore's death said he would have given up several of his most prosperous properties and cities you know, before he would have cut that guy's head off. Mm-hmm. So that head had um, just so much, so much in it, uh, so much study, so much uh, reflection, so much thought on the best way to live, on the best way for government to be ordered, um, that is part of the, you know, the tragedy of, of the history as well. Let, let's go back from more to Wolseley. Why does Wolseley fall? Uh, there are three great advisors to Henry VIII, Wolseley, Moore, and uh, uh, um, Cromwell. Why does well, Wolseley I, tumble first? Well, uh, he blames his own ambition and, and disordered ambition. Um, you know, throughout the history play, his ambition comes up as a problem. It's not so much that it's intrinsically bad, at least I don't think, in Shakespeare's view. It's that disordered pursuit of it um, or pursuit of it outside of principle or, or the good. But when he, um, when he falls, he, he, like I said, he gives one of the best speeches in, in the late Shakespeare, and he, he tells his servant Cromwell, you know, that when you look at me and you look at my story, he says, say that I taught you. Say that Woolsey um, found, found you a way out of his own rack to rise. Oh. Sure a sure and safe way. So Woolsey actually teaches from that position of kind of humiliation and defeat. And he says, um, tells him to fling away that disordered ambition, um, love himself last, to cherish the hearts that hate him. Uh, he says, my robe and my integrity to heaven are all I dare call my own at this point. And then he gives that famous line, which you may have heard in another context, O Cromwell, O Cromwell, had I but served my God with half to zeal, uh, that I served my own ambition, he wouldn't have left me naked to my enemies. Um, and he, and in his last counsel is um, to place his hope uh, in God and to exercise patience, and then he'll die. So, we'll come back to Cromwell in a moment. At the same time, Catherine is tumbling out of Henry's love and out of the play, but not, not yet to death. What, what's her problem? Well, she's going to have the marriage will be put to a public trial and she will appeal to Rome and then she will be um, eventually cast off. The portrait of Catherine in this play is probably the at least top three strongest in like Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare invests tremendous dignity in Catherine. Uh, Samuel Johnson said something to the effect that his mind and his art and his heart. In this play, they go in and out with Catherine. Like when when Catherine's on the stage, Shakespeare's blazing, and then and then when she dies, um, the rest is silence. So she's really important in the play. And Doctor Ron may remember this better than I do, but when I first arrived at Hillsdale, I want to say that Dame Judy Dench came to Hillsdale College for CCA, and she gave her talk, 
and at the end she she asked the crowd would would you would you mind if I performed a speech for you and of course the crowd said yes please do and to my amazement she from memory performed uh, lines from Catherine of Aragon from this play so a great wow. great, act, great great actress like that when she chose the one you know, character through whom to bring down the house. It was Queen Catherine, baby, all the way for the it's win. Like, it's like John Voigt going to Richard III. Did you film that, Dr. Arn? Did anyone film her? Well, I, here's a, something I deeply regret. Uh, Steve Smith came to the college one year before I, and that means I can't take credit for hiring him, and I wasn't uh, here when that happened. Uh uh, I did see Claire Bloom do something like that once. Oh, maybe that's who it was. I, okay, I, I couldn't. I was searching my memory and. Oh, okay. Right. Well, that that I remember. Yeah, yeah, and that was. You know, she's. You know who she is. She was in a lot of really great play, uh, films, and she's. I'm. I, I got to watch it now that I've found it. Did you film it? Uh, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh. Yeah, we did. I know we did. Cause You've got to put that on the website. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That... I'll look it up. It, uh, yeah, it's, uh, she was, you know, she was, uh, she's quite a woman, uh, and she played in a lot of great classical theater and Shakespeare theater. Uh, and those, and see, Kat, remember this, see, Catherine and Wolsey, they couldn't get the job done, right? They had one job. Yep, and uh, Wolsey's fault, in my opinion, because I, I don't. I, I think in this story, I think Catherine is faultless. I mean, she just see, she she was married to Henry's brother, who died young and suddenly, and they got an annulment, and then she married Henry, and she's a very faithful woman, right? At the time, she had to think that was right, and she proves her piety in part because her reason for not, and this is in the history too. For not being willing to agree with that is because that would be a mortal sin. That's it. She is a woman of her faith to the end. And when we come back, we're going to talk about her vision and about Cranmer. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hilldale Dialogue will conclude right after this. back, America. Hugh Hewitt talking with Dr. Arn, Dr. Smith, as I have been for many weeks. And we want to talk about Catherine and Henry VIII. And we want to talk about Elizabeth's birth. We're going to talk about this Cranmer fellow. So, Stephen Smith, you've got the floor. Okay. So, Catherine, um, when she is, uh, you know, put aside and, and she's on her approaching her death, Shakespeare includes a wonderful scene in which the news breaks to her that Wolsey is dead and she asks her servant about Wolsey, um, and the servant surprisingly defends Wolsey and especially points out his death, how it, his overthrow heaped happiness on him. For then and not till then, he felt himself and found the blessedness of being little and to add greater honors to his age than man could give him, he died fearing God. Huh. So the servant kind of surprisingly intercedes for Wolsey and, and Catherine, who has got every reason in the world to, to be furious with, with Wolsey, accepts the praise and says, you know, I wish when I'm dead that I, I have such an honest chronicler as you. And then she falls into a sleep. And in one of the more, maybe most remarkable scenes in the late Shakespeare, she has a vision of spirits 
uh, that come to her and uh, they circle her. There's a banquet, angels with bright faces. They promise her eternal happiness and they bring her a garland. They, they bring her a crown. She says afterwards that she felt she's not yet worthy to wear. And so this queen who is kind of cast off and humiliated and dying uh, has this vision of, of being crowned by heaven at the end. It's extremely powerful. You know, that's very consistent with those who argue Shakespeare is a closet Catholic working in a Protestant time. Well, the last, you know, the last thing that she does is she gives a letter um, to the servant to, to send to Henry, um, you know, protesting that she's, you know, wishing him health. Um, she's his good wife at the end, and also asking that her servant um, be taken care of by the king both men and women, and in, in particular, she commends their daughter Mary to Henry VIII. Well, she does get to be queen, but she dies young and not pregnant, cancer-ridden, and Elizabeth shows up, and I want to make sure we get to this. Elizabeth sure. is baptized by Cranmer, and a prophecy is given. Yeah, at the very end, um, the play ends after the death of Catherine. There's only about 35 minutes left if you, when you're watching the production. And Cramner is, um, what, helped out by Henry VIII. Um, and then he will baptize um, Elizabeth and then give a prophecy about the baby, about the future peace of England, even about King James, it turns out. And the play will, will end with, with that prophecy and Henry kind of proclaiming a, a holiday for everyone. I, I like that part. Everybody gets a holiday. It's sort of like Dr. Arn dismissing classes. What do you think is that? What is that? The, ho- the holiday? Yeah. Well, what's, what's strange to me, Hugh, is that right after he proclaims the holiday, um, the epilogue um, sounds, and the, the, the speaker of the epilogue says, well, it's kind of like 10 to 1, but this play will never please everybody. <laughs> because, you know, look, it's like the baptism of Elizabeth, and she becomes a great monarch, um, but this is a play about loss as well. You know, you have the loss of Buckingham, the fall of Wolsey, the, the death of Catherine. Uh, everyone sitting in that theater in 1613 knows the history of England and everything that follows. So that moment of the baptism of Elizabeth is quite a detail to end on. So, so let's go back. We've been doing this for many weeks. Back to John. What's the takeaway from people? Hey, go watch The Hollow Crown. Go read the plays. Go to Hillsdale and take Stephen Smith. And take Tyranny from Arn. What's your takeaway, though, in the context of the Hillsdale Dialogues, uh, Stephen Smith? I think that the plays force us to confront a great need you know, that we all have, which we, we need to learn how to lead ourselves and others better than these leading figures do in Shakespeare's plays. And there's a missing, there's a missing leader in Shakespearean drama, and um, England is, suffers for it. And I think by the end, it's the most desirable thing in the world. How do you learn that? How do you learn how to become a fit leader of yourself and others? Before I turn it over to Dr. Arn, I will say you don't want to be in a monarchy. That's what I, a hereditary Well, it, so that's right. In other words, this all, this all displays one form of government and its limits. And, and the, you, have to, you have to do something else. Because if you invest all the power 
you know, in England, never all the power, but too much of the power in one person. People are mortal. And, and so the greatest statesmen in history, I've got a list of three, they were all horrified by the idea of exercising soul power. And the reason was that what a terrible way to spend your life, making people do things they don't want to do. You're their wouldn't servant be, then. Wouldn't it have been great if we'd had Shakespeare write about Churchill, Washington, and Lincoln? Oh, yeah. yeah I got the list right? Yeah, I thought so. Dr. Larry Arnn, Stephen Smith, Dean Smith, thanks to you both. This has been a magnificent series. We will come back with Macbeth and Lear at another time because we just have to in Hamlet. But friendship is next, my friend. Thank you. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I'll be back on Monday, America, with the next Hugh Hewitt Show.